The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 6, 30-44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And he said to them, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided up the two fish among them all. And then, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you want to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, that's where we are. Um, At Sacred City, we don't do anything too special. We preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. We are now six and a half chapters deep into the gospel according to Mark. It has been an exciting study for us, studying the real Jesus. And today is, is really no different. Now, what's interesting is you probably, you know, you heard the reading of the scripture this morning. And most of us in this room are probably familiar with the story. What Jesus did today is one of the only stories that's in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not only is it in all four of the Gospels, but he does the same thing twice in two of them. So this multiplying bread, Jesus does, you know, it's, it's, Jesus is shown doing it six times in the Gospels. Okay, so there's something important that's going on. And the funny thing is, usually I read a lot of commentaries, uh, six or seven per week on, on each, on each text that I'm studying just to get what are the scholars saying from a wide range of opinions, um, to balance these out and to see what they're saying. And the funny thing is, is a lot of, there's a lot of, sometimes there's, you know, differing opinions. But on this text, it's, I could have read one and been fine. Because they're, they all, they're all pretty much the saying the same thing about this text. Because it's, it's in so many different places. And that each gospel writer gives us a little bit, of, little bit more detail about what's going on. So we're not really uh, confused at what's going on today. And what we're going to be talking about is how to rest. So we're going to be talking about how to find rest. And I think it's a very important topic for us to talk about today because I think many of us um, don't experience rest. We're constantly tired. We're constantly over-caffeinated. And I'm speaking to myself right now, okay? Like in this moment, okay? Uh, We're over-caffeinated. We are, anytime we get a moment, 
Like there used to be this thing where if you had to go to the doctor, you had to like sit for a half an hour and you had to like look around. You were reading like six month old good housekeeping magazine or something, right? There was this, what am I going to do? And now you pull up at a stoplight and you look next to you, right? And, we're, and everybody's checking the statuses, checking their Facebooks, checking their social media that we don't have um, quiet time anymore. We don't have soul rest anymore. Many times the first thing we do when we wake up is check our phones. The last thing we do before we go to bed is check our phones. That we've got this little electronic device that we stick in our pocket that buzzes all the time, that reminds us, that wakes us up, that, that says you're important, you're needed, and we don't have time just to rest and just to think and just to relax and just to really experience God. I think it's a big problem. And... In Genesis chapter 1, it's the first chapter of the book of the Bible, God, the uncreated creator, he exists eternally. Scripture teaches us three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before all time. He's happy. He's in a loving community before anything. And God does this. He creates six days, and then he rests one day. Creates everything in six days, and then he rests in one. It's fascinating that this God of unlimited power and strength He never gets tired. He's working a six-on, one-off schedule. God worked, and then God rested. Now, God was not exhausted. God was not tired. God did not get at the end of the sixth day and get frustrated and cranky at the other members of the Trinity and say, I just need some alone time. Right? That's usually what tells us we need a little alone time. Right? Mom's in the bathroom, the music's up loud, I hear the bath running. Just leave her alone, okay? Just leave her alone. Now, what's going on here? Immediately in the scriptures, God is teaching us that work and rest are good. Work and rest are good. But then in Genesis chapter 3, when God's creation, mankind, rises in rebellion against him, mankind wants autonomy. What does that mean? They want to be their own rulers. I want to make my own rules, make my own schedule. We want to rule ourselves. And one of the repercussions, this is, this is funny. It's, it's just the same today, okay? Mankind wants to rule himself. God works six days. He rests one day. Mankind wants to rule himself. And one of the repercussions of mankind uh, wanting to rule himself is work gets cursed and rest gets hard to find, right? It's like a guy who goes, you know what? I'm tired of working for this boss. I'm going to work for myself. I'm going to start my own business. Go ahead. And you're going to work twice as hard. And your hours will be twice as long. And your weekends are going to be crowded, right? Mankind wants autonomy. Work kind of gets cursed. Rest gets hard to find. And here's the funny thing. In one sense, the entire Bible is about that right there. Work is exhausting. It's never finished. And rest is really hard to find. And almost all of our problems in life, doctors will even tell us right now that most of our physical problems in this life are coming from those two realities. Work is exhausting and stressful. We're stressed out and we can't rest. We work. We produce. We create. Then the demands of our work weigh us down and they wear us out and we go searching for rest. And sometimes we go searching for rest in really bad places. 
It's one of the reasons for many of the addictions. We want to find some respite. We want to find some rest outside of our daily life. So we turn to drugs or we turn sometimes to other addictions. We, you know, working out becomes an addiction or whatever this other thing is becomes an addiction. Many of us, we work so hard um, just with the hope that we're going to have a rest in the future. So we work really, really hard and we stuff some money away only to go spend it all at Disneyland. This will be, this is, this will be restful, <laughs> right? I'll pay $3,000 or five for rest. This will be restful. And we get there and we realize, what did I do? <laughs> or we spend all of our thirties and forties working our life away, making sacrifices, uh, can't be at the kids' baseball game, and can't help them with their homework, and can't be there for the wife, and can't go on date nights, and we can't do all this because I've got to crush work. I've got to put out more, I've got to make more sales or do my, more things so that we'll have retirement someday, or so I'll be able to pay for the kids' college someday. We're making all these sacrifices in the present for some future hope of rest. But if you're like me, have you ever noticed that your work kind of haunts your rest time. Anytime I go on a vacation, the first few days of vacation are just recovery mode. It's just, oh, this is what it feels like not to have to do anything. You just kind of in recovery, you kind of get caught up, you get almost into normal, and then you spend the next couple of days like, this is what real life looks like. This is so wonderful. And then all of a sudden this thought comes into your head. Two more days and I have to go home. And all of a sudden, the last two days are actually not that enjoyable because all you're thinking about is the work and the pressures. And when I get back, I'm going to pay for the week off I took. And I'm going to have 100 emails or 200 emails or 500 emails that I have to answer. I'm going to have voicemails. I'm going to have to get all these people I have to meet with and make contacts to catch up on the projects that I missed. And that work actually even infiltrates our rest periods and can kind of haunt us in our rest. How well do you experience rest? Really, how well do you rest? Most people that I meet, most people I counsel, one of the major problems in their life is they can't rest. One theologian says, all of human problems come from this one thing. They can't sit in a room alone and quiet. Our problems stem from the fact human beings can't sit in a room and be quiet. How do we experience this kind of rest? I hope to answer that for you today. I think Jesus is going to answer that for us today. And one of the most uh, attractive and interesting to me, fascinating aspects to Christianity over and against all the other world religions is that Christianity um, is about rest. Christianity offers a true rest, an ultimate rest, a soul rest, and no other religion does. But this true rest, it's funny, it comes in an unlikely way. It comes in almost the opposite way that we all would ex expect it to come. We expect rest to come at the end of our intense labors. Once we check everything off our to-do list, then we've earned the right to rest. Well, Christianity comes in a different way. And then some of us are even tempted to believe that West rest is a destination, right? It's Orlando in the sun, or it's Hawaii, or it's uh, somewhere far, far away. And some of us, maybe it's just a deck. It's a deck in the sun, right? And the kids are asleep. 
It's all I need. Or it's a chair on the beach, or it's a weekend in Chicago. But what we're going to discover today is that to, uh, rest is a place, ultimately. I'm going to just say this. Heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, are the ultimate place of rest, where we experience ultimate rest. So rest is a place, it is a destination, but before it's a place, it's actually a person. And it's actually a person and a relationship that you can experience here. It's a change of attitude. It's a change of heart, a change of kind of um, center, if you will. That if you change it here, it can actually change your every day. And you can actually experience this rest in the here and now. And I'm going to show you this. Um, a year or so ago, we preached through the book of Genesis. And it's, it, was a, it was a fun time. We worked all the way through the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis ends with Joseph being ruler over Egypt, right? He's in Potiphar's house and he gets exalted and all of his brothers, the Hebrews, they get brought into Egypt. Well, what happens is um, between Genesis and Exodus, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, um, started multiplying like crazy in Egypt, okay? They had a lot of babies. God's people... Have babies. One of the things we do, be fruitful, multiply. We build families. We bless the earth. That's one of the things that we're meant to do. We're called to do. Well, when God's people were multiplying, Pharaoh eventually saw them as a threat. They were growing and growing and growing. And Pharaoh said, okay, these, these guys are a threat to me. So I'm going to enslave them. And they became slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Now, what are slaves for? What do slaves do? Well, it's interesting. This is how Exodus 1, 13 and 14 describe the life of the Israelites and the people in Egypt. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard work in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the fields in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves, right? What are slaves for? What the Egyptians showed us right there. This is what slaves do. They work, 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 work. It was kind of free labor, right? They could build the pyramids and they could build everything they were building off the backs of slaves, their entire existence was made up of being productive. How much can you produce? So much so that when God raised up a deliverer, this man named Moses from amongst them, one of the things that Pharaoh did was he said, all right, now I'm going to take away your straw. I'm going to make your work even harder, but you have to keep up the same amount of product, productivity, right? Their whole existence was made up of being productive. How much can you produce? The Bible is just not, it doesn't relate to today at all. It really just doesn't. It's such an ancient document. I mean, we don't have these issues at all in today, this day and age, right? Being productive, being ruled by a taskmaster. Now, we might not have a, sl a slave master at our back. Most of our bosses have HR departments where they can't do that, right? But I, if you're anything like me, the greatest slave master you have is yourself, that pressures you and whips you and tells you to produce more, 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 more. Now, when God raises up this deliverer, this man named Moses from amongst his people, he's called by God to lead God's people out of Egypt and into the promised land. Now, what is the promised land? Well, one of the promises of the promised land was this land of rest. They would no longer have to work, 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 work. Now they're going to enter this land of rest. That's one of the promises. 
In this new land, they're going to find rest. God will be their God and they'll find rest. But tragically, because of Israel's lack of faith in God and their disobedience, they never actually enter into that restful place. Most of them die in the wilderness, wandering in it for 40 years. They've been slaves to work and they die. This is sad. They die thinking positive thoughts about Egypt. It's one of the funniest things if you're reading through the book of Exodus. They start complaining. Remember the meat pots back in Egypt? The meat pots. They don't remember the work, 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 work. All they remember is they had meat pots in Egypt. Start looking back on the stew. That was some good stew back then. All God does is rain bread out of heaven for us, right? And make water come out of a rock. We want some meat pots, right? They've been slaves to work. Now, but even... On the edge of the promised land, God's, God raises up this new, this new guy to take Moses' spot. Moses doesn't get to go into the land of rest either. And he raises up Joshua, which is where we get the name Jesus, Yeshua, from. It's a root of Joshua. So we kind of see this, we're going to see this parallel in our text today. Joshua is on the verge. He's about to bring his people into the land of rest. But one of the things that we find out is, let me just read this from Hebrews chapter 4. It gives us some clarity. The writer to the Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews chapter four. When Joshua was bringing them into the promised land, they failed to enter God's rest because of disobedience. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later on in Psalm 95 of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Hear that. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So he's saying that there still remains a rest for the people of God. There still remains a supernatural rest for God's people. That promise still stands. Now listen, he goes on. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. That's a sentence that's worth, worthy of some study. Let us strive to enter that rest. That's interesting. You need to work to rest. There's going to be a fight to get you to relax. That resting is going to come at an effort from you. It will not come natural. There's something about us that spurns rest. There's something about us that sees rest as weakness and we run from weakness. The writer of the Hebrews says, strive to enter that rest. Still, he goes on. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's saying people have a rest problem, just like they had a rest problem in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. Even believers of Jesus, Christians, still have a rest problem. And our problem at rest is caused by our disobedience to God's word. Now, this is interesting. I'm still reading Hebrews because right after he says that, he says this for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit joints and marrow discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What's he saying? The writer here is saying that God's word like a surgeon's scalpel is meant to peel back the layers on us and reveal what's really causing our problems. It's meant to divide us and 
cut us open and reveal the source of our disobedience. Do we disobey God? Of course we do. Do we struggle with rest? Yes, of course we do. Do we break commandments? Yes, of course we do. Why? Why? Why is rest so hard to find? Because our thoughts and the intentions of our heart are so messed up. Now, I need you to see this because I think this is unique to Christianity and makes a whole lot of sense out of our current feelings and the struggles we have in our daily life. What is it about work that is so exhausting? What is, what is it about our life? And when I say work, please don't hear, I'm not just, think, I'm not just saying nine to five, what you, where you get your paycheck. If you're a stay-at-home mom, all of that is included in work, right? If you're an artist, that's included. Whatever it is that we do. Why is it so exhausting? The Bible says this, that when Adam and Eve... The first of mankind who were created by God to live in a right relationship, a restful relationship with him in the garden. When they rebelled from him and they wanted to live under their own rule, their disobedience caused a curse to come down on them. And one of the things that curse caused was for their thoughts and intentions of their heart to be bent inward. No longer could they walk restfully with God. They ran from him. It's the first thing. God shows up to walk in the garden with them, to experience a restful relationship with them, and they're hiding in the bushes. They were afraid of him. Now, herein lies our greatest problems as human beings. Mankind was made by God for God. We were built to live in relationship with him, in a restful relationship with him, but because of sin, we have been separated from him. And that relationship has been damaged. This separation created a vacuum in the soul that has affected everything about us, especially our work. Let me ask you, how productive do you need to be? How satisfied are you with your productivity? How much do you need to get done each day each week, each month, each year to be satisfied. Now, most of you would go, um, just a little more. I just need a little bit more productivity. And then next year, it's a little bit more. And next year, it's a little bit more. Are you ever satisfied with your amount of productivity? The, the amount of things you can get done on your checklist, your to-do list? Most of you know that it's never enough. There are always more products to sell. There's always more people to meet with. There's always more books to study, more rooms to clean, more homes to build. If you've accomplished everything you wanted to accomplish this past year, you probably lack ambition and you need a bigger vision for your life. Now, first off, that's actually a good thing. It's a good thing that our work is never done. We would get really bored if it was. There's actually another thing. There's, there's always another thing to kind of keep us interested and keep us motivated. There's another hill to climb, another goal to accomplish. The problem with work isn't work at all, actually. The problem with work is in us. Okay, the thoughts and intentions of our heart have been marred, have been messed up by sin. So the problem we have with work is actually a problem we have within ourselves. The problem is that we are separated from God, the source of our rest. 
the source of our satisfaction, and we are working really hard at filling that vacuum in our souls with our own productivity. This is, listen, this is the work that goes under our own work that's really exhausting. This is the work under our work that's the great problem we have. This is what stresses us out. It's not our work. It's not our productivity. It's not our day-to-day pressures. It's the work under our work. This is what really weighs us down, causes us to, to kind of slip into depression. The work under our work. What does that mean? The work under our work. We believe we will find peace. We will find happiness. We will find success. We will finally win the approval of the people in our circle through our own productivity. Where does our acceptance come from? One more thing. One more sale. Finally, the boss will look down and say, good job. You're the best we got. Right? Finally, my hu- your husband will look and say, you're the best wife I got. <laughs> right? Right? Finally, whoever it is we're trying to find the approval of, it could be our parents, it could be our boss, it could be our coworkers, it could be our children, that finally somebody's going to give us that attaboy. This is the work that's under our work that's exhausting. This is what we're really working for. It's the approval of others. Being productive is our way of dealing with our own insecurities. Madonna has famously said that every few years she has to create a new product. She said this in Vanity Fair several years back. She says, every year I have to create a new product and, and, and recreate myself and put out a new album because I feel over and over and over that I'm just not good enough. And then I put something out that tells me, yep, you still got it. Yep, you're still good enough. Yep, you're a special human being. But after a year or so, I start getting this nagging feeling inside that says, you need to do something cool again. You need to do something cool again. You need to recreate yourself. You need to prove that you're a worthwhile human being, something special. Being productive is our way of dealing with our inner insecurities. This is the work that lies under our work, and it's the great cause of burnout, exhaustion, and our inability to truly find the rest that we need as humans and the rest that God offers us. St. Augustine said in his confessions in the first part, he said, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Today, Jesus is going to show us how to find rest, and he's doing it in a very unique way. Let's look here. It took me a long time to get there, but we're there. Verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. Now, to catch you up, Jesus is doing a couple things. Number one, he's proving he's the king. Okay? He's the long-awaited Messiah, the one who was promised in the book of Genesis who would fix all of the brokenness, all of the curse of creation, and ultimately give us rest. He's the one who would stamp out all of evil and fix this broken world and give us rest and give all of creation rest. But what he, he's also doing something very interesting that confused a lot of people. He's training men. Jesus is 
He believes in on-the-job training, right? He's discipling and training followers to live in that kingdom now, to live in a different way, a distinct way that the culture would look in and go, oh, that's what a life with God looked like. He's teaching people how to find rest for their souls. And right now, what he's done is he did a lot of ministry with the apostles right next to him. He healed people. He taught. He preached the gospel. He did a lot of amazing things. And then he got them to a point where he says, okay, I've been training you in several ways. Number one, they had the big crowd like this on Sunday morning. Jesus would preach to the crowds. They learned how to preach to the crowds. Then he had these group of apostles, 12 disciples. This is like a missional community. Jesus had his own missional community where he would teach the apostles special things about what he was teaching on Sunday. Uh, or not just on Sunday, I'm sorry. What he was teaching in the large group, he broke it down for them. And then he had what we call fight clubs around here. He would take Peter, James, and John off on a hillside. He would pray with them. He would teach them special things. So we see kind of three contexts for Jesus' ministry. And one of the things that Jesus does is as he's been training his apostles, he's been training these apprentices. He sends them off two by two in pairs to be in community with each other and to be on his mission. Go do what you've been doing. Go preach the gospel. Go spread it. He sends them out to be on mission. Now, what we're finding in our text right now is Jesus has been empowering his disciples with authority and responsibility. He's slowly revealing to them all, all of them that they're in the game. And this is unique. Now, I want you to hear this. If you read the Old Testament... Most of the time, when you read the Old Testament, you think, you, you get this sense that there's this coming king, there's this coming conqueror, even this, this coming warrior that's going to make everything right. And it seems like most of the time that this is going to be an immediate thing. When the king shows up, he's going to take his throne, all of evil will be destroyed, and there'll be this new rule and new reign on the earth, and everything will be made right. And everybody's looking forward to this. Now, Jesus shows up and says, yep, that's me, I'm king. But then he starts training apprentices. Now, why would, if he's going to, if everything's coming right now, the kingdom is set up right now, why train apprentices? You're the man, you're the king. The, the story is, you get your kingdom, game over, story over. They all lived happily ever after. But Jesus' story is, I'm king, and there's still work to do. And I'm, there's going to be a gap between my first coming and my second coming where my followers have some work to do. And they need to learn how to work hard and do the things that I'm doing, mainly preaching the gospel. And they're also going to need to learn how to rest well. That the way they rest is going to a window, be a window into the gospel that people can look at their lives in a busy culture. People can look and go, they're resting different than I'm resting. They're satisfied in a different way than I'm satisfied. They're at peace at a different way than I'm at peace. They work differently than I work. That our work and rest schedule is meant to be a window into the gospel that our unbelieving neighbors and friends can see. Now, let's keep <clears throat> reading here. So the apostles, so I'm sorry, one last thing. Send them out. They come back in, two by two. What are they coming back in for? This is kind of what we do here at Sacred City. We call them huddles, right? They go out, they're on mission, and now they're coming back, and they're getting a ministry debrief. Basically, they're coming back to ministry headquarters with Jesus, and they're going to be like, all right, Jesus, tell us what we did good. Tell us what went wrong. Jesus is going to be, they're going to be swapping stories, finding out what it looked like for them to go out on ministry by themselves. So they, they returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done. Look at verse 31. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourself to a desolate place. This is a wilderness place and rest a while. Now we need to hear that. These, these men and, 
these men were involved in heavy ministry. They were involved in the supernatural side of ministry, that they had a great weight upon them. And they get back from frenetic pace of ministry, and what do they need? They need rest. And Jesus looks at them and says, rest. And I'm going to look at some of you and say, today, you need rest. Some of you, some of us, we need rest. Come away and let's rest for a while. That's what Jesus says to us. Now keep reading. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. They were the hottest thing in town. People always have needs. There's always another person to meet with. There's always another person to talk with. There's always another, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They don't even have room to eat, okay? They're swamped. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So they crossed the Sea of Galilee again, and they go to this place. Um, in that desolate place, it's a wilderness place. And I'm just going to let you know, um, in John, it tells us after this experience of Jesus, what happens is they want to grab him and make him king. That's the response of the people. It doesn't say it in Mark, but it says it in John, that the response of the people, what Jesus is about to do is they want to grab him and make him king. Now, why? Interesting scholars say that Jesus, he's going over to a desolate place. He's not just going over to a little bed and breakfast, okay? He's not going over to a little, nice little cozy beach, right? That's, that's been preserved and it's just, there's, you know, there's, there's just nice and it's just a restful place. This place is actually a zealot hideout, okay? It's kind of like the guerrilla warfare of Israel, that there was this group of people that wanted Israel to rise up against Rome and declare their independence and get, and become their own state again. And all they were looking for, this, these zealots, all the, and one of the disciples of Jesus was a zealot, and all, all these zealots were looking for was a leader. And then I think if you watch the uh, AD show that they're putting up, they've, they've had on right now, it's been pretty good so far. Uh, I think it's on NBC or ABC. And, uh, and they've done a good job of, dis, of kind of telling the story of the, of the zealots. All the zealots were looking for is a king. They just need a man. They need a face. They need a poster boy. They need somebody on top of the food chain that can rally the troops, right? And Jesus heads over to this gathering, this gathering of zealots, and he gets off the boat. And this is what happens. They went away in the boat into a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going, and they recognized them. And the lake is not that big of a lake. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So they look out over the lake and they see this little boat pointed in this direction. And they're going, oh, okay. They just run around the lake, right? All these people, this mass of people. When he went ashore, Jesus saw a great crowd. Now, what's the need here? The need is we need, we need rest, Let's just say it. We're tired of ministry. We're tired of the demands of life. I want a vacation. I want rest. Jesus says, all right, you need rest. Come follow me. Let's go get rest. Heads over. Ministry follows. Now, this is where I get mad. Let's just say it. This is where I get mad at whoever made my reservations, okay? I'm like, rest? They're here. They followed me here right? This is not good. This is not restful. But look at the response of Jesus. And this is, not a, this is not a mistake. This is not happenstance. Look at the response of Jesus. He saw a great crowd. So the pressures of ministry still there. And he had compassion on them. It means he felt 
their pain. He saw, he felt the weight of their suffering. Jesus is a man who enters into human sufferings. He feels the weight of our depression. He feels the weight of our anxiety. He feels the weight of our stress. He feels the weight of our impossible demands. He has compassion on them because look, they were like a sheep without a shepherd. Again, this isn't, you know, the only thing, if you grew up in the church, this is, this, is the, this, this is the picnic with Jesus story, okay? And that is not, uh, it's, it's not a very good depiction of what's actually going on here. Jesus on the hillside, they all spread out their quilts, and then he's about to multiply the, the bread and the fish, right? This is not what's going on. He's, they're hurried, they're busy, they're stressed out, they're in a minute, they're in a zealot hideout. They're in this guerrilla warfare town, and, and look, like a sheep without a shepherd, they're, they're wanting to make him king. They're wanting a ruler. They're wanting someone to rise up against Rome. But Jesus has compassion on them. And look, and he began to teach them many things. I'm just going to say, I'm the same in my, really in my notes. The first need of people, sheep without a shepherd, is teaching. To understand the ways of Jesus. Understand what Jesus teaches. That's the first need. We're going to keep on. All right, let me just stop right there. We get it. Hopefully we get the context here. The disciples need rest, but the rest they expect isn't going to happen. They're worn out, but they get to the other side and the ministry has followed them. This is kind of like bedtime at my house, okay? What is bedtime? It's one of the greatest gifts of the day, right? It's where your kids... go are meant to go to sleep, and then you get to lay your head down on the pillow, thank God for everything that he provided for you that day, that you're still breathing, that you're still living, that you ate, that you were provided for, that, that the stars are still in the sky. God did what God said he would do, and now this sleep is a gift, the psalmist tells us, that God gives us, that we lay our head on the pillow and we're meant to rest, right? Trusting that as I sleep, he keeps working, Right? I'm going to sleep telling myself in the world, I'm not sovereign. I'm not autonomous. I need rest, but God continues to work. But, right, sleep is this great gift. It is absolutely a great gift that's meant to remind us that we're not infinite, that our productivity must be paired and partnered with rest. We need sleep to recharge for the day. But for parents, right, Nothing is more frustrating and soul-crushing than needing rest, needing sleep, and your kids just won't let you, right? Last night, I, my kids, I, I don't, they don't have technology. They must be sneaking some kind of alarm clock in their room that wakes them up on a 30-minute schedule. Something that wakes, number one, wakes dad up, oh, 3.30 in the morning, oh, okay. One's in bed, you're creeping down. I'm hungry. No. <laughs> Number three, you get down to your rest. You're like about to fall asleep. No. When you got, I got four of them and every one of them were up on a 30 minute schedule last night. I'm like, you realize I'm preaching on rest tomorrow. <laughs> all night long, all night long. Now what's going on? 
The disciples need rest, and they say rest is going to come at the nice little bed and breakfast across town with Jesus, right? We're going to sit mimosas with Jesus, and it's going to be, we're going to calm down, just talk about ministry and life. And they get over there, and what follows them? Life, ministry, demands, right? Parents, you lay your head at, I mean, it's like a, it's almost, it feels like Russian roulette when I'm laying my head on the pillow at night. Amanda laughed because a few weeks ago I looked at her and I go, well, good luck. Hope Nora doesn't wake up and screw up her life again. That's the way it feels like. Now, this is kind of like where the disciples are at. I might be just preaching to myself this morning. So this is going to be a huge single counseling session to myself. So sorry about that. Let's keep reading. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. So there, <laughs> Jesus wakes up or Jesus steps off the boat. He has compassion. And what are the disciples doing? Okay. All right. Sun's going down. It's getting late. And what, they start looking for problems, right? You know what? Sun's going down. What, what's an angle? What angle can we use to get him to stop doing what he's doing? Jesus, here's the deal. Sun's going down. Lots of people here. No McDonald's, okay? Send them home. We need to send them into the towns. So they need, they need to get something to eat. We got a problem here. They need to go eat. Okay, so problem one, Jesus solved by uh, teaching them. Problem two, let's see how he's going to solve it. Okay? Verse 36. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something, send, something to eat. But Jesus said to them, Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, um, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Now what's going on? Jesus is flipping the script here on them. He, they, Jesus, everybody needs to eat. Send them at home. Let them go get it. We'll start over in the morning. Jesus says, you feed them. He puts the response. Now listen, Think about, why would Jesus do this? Hey, guys, come on. You've been working hard. You need to rest. Come on over to the other side of the lake. They get over to the other side. Life follows them. They see a problem. Oh, man, these people need food. Jesus goes, yeah, yep, take care of that. He puts more weight on already tired disciples. There's a saying that makes its way around our culture, and many people claim it's from the Bible. You know, the Bible says, God will never put on you more than you can bear. God will never give you more than you can handle. Well, that's not in the Bible, and that's not true. What's Jesus doing here? He's giving them more than they can handle. He's putting on them more than they can bear. He's stressing out an already stressed out group of disciples. They're coming off their first missionary journal journey. They've been out sharing the gospel. They're worn out. Jesus says, man, you guys look tired. We need rest. And then he leads them up here to this militia hideout, and he tells them to feed several thousand people. That's not in my vacation plans. Now, the funny thing is, I, honestly, personally, I felt like this a few weeks ago. I after Easter, I texted my fight club, I texted the elders, and I said, guys, I'm depressed, I'm worn out, I'm exhausted. I don't, even, I don't even want to wake up in the morning. 
I had, I had issues going on in my missional community, just everyday normal issues that, that go on with caring for people and shepherding people and being in community with people. I had a friend of mine walk away from Jesus that was really a weight on me. We were about to multiply our missional community, so we were training leaders and raising up leaders, and Easter was just on the, the horizon. So what did I do? I put my head down. I was determined to push through it, knowing that the week after, see, here's what I do. The week after, I have a conference in Orlando. Amanda's going with me, and I'm going to find rest in Orlando. Oh, just push your head, put your head down, Justin. Plow through. Vacation's coming, right? A little bit of respite's coming. And it's a funny thing. Surprisingly, you know, waking up at 4.30 a.m. to catch a plane with a six-month-old baby is not a very good recipe for a restful weekend, if you didn't know. This weekend begins with a 4.30 a.m. wake-up call. We get to the airport. We get there. Our plane, of course, is delayed. We're running through the airport. And listen, traveling with a baby isn't like a cute little baby like this. Traveling with a baby is, I feel, I've got a diaper bag in this hand. I've got suitcases. I've got the, the baby carrier. I got a stroller on my back. And of course, you're right. You show up at Atlanta and your connecting flight is on the other side of the airport. And you have like 15 minutes to sprint to the other side. Right? So I said, all right, babe, just hold her like a football and let's go. <laughs> right? So we were juking and we were running and we sit, we get on our plane, we sit down and it's eight minutes to take off, right? No breakfast. I was like, I'm going to get a coffee when I get to Atlanta and I'm going to get a little Egg McMuffin or something. I'm dreaming of this on the first flight and I get there. None of that. I'm starving. Can't eat until we get into Florida. And then, you know, it's a busy weekend of ministry. And then on the way home, our baby screams the, we're that parent. Our baby screams the entire flight, the entire flight. There was nothing we could do. I'm just looking at everybody, sorry, 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 get it, I know. People are like, ah. right? Everybody's going, this is why we don't have children, right? Like, that's what they're saying. And I know that's what they're saying about my child. And I'm just like, I'm a bad dad, I'm pinching her, that's what I'm doing. Jeez. Right? right, then I get home, and I've already made this announcement, then I get home, Stressed out already, mad. Then I get home and I find out that, that Pastor Casey's going to be taking this new job in Oklahoma City. And I swear that was like the proverbial straw placed on the camel's back. <laughs> right? I shared with my missional community and they, they kind of spoke to me, kind of helped me see what was going on. That, see, I was carrying a lot of weight. I was living like I was the father. I was in control of everything. This is how the church is going to go, and this is what needs to happen. And all the, I was kind of trying to manage all things in my life. And not only that, this is how arrogant I am. I was also the son. I was also trying to be Jesus. I thought I could actually save people through my efforts. That if I said the right things or did the right things, people would respond to Jesus in a good way. And not only that, but I was trying to be the Holy Spirit. Maybe if I say just the right thing, I can produce repentance in somebody's heart, right? I can cause them to turn from Jesus and see. And I remember with the person that turned from Jesus doing everything, I'm like, they didn't get it. Let me say it a different way. 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 And everything I said felt like a ping pong ball bouncing off a statue. 
And God finally was bringing me to the end of myself, putting that last little straw on the camel's back, as it were, to break me, to cause me to cry out for the one thing that I need that I can't produce in my own self, and that's grace. That's rest. And I remember repenting at missional community. And I remember waking up that morning and opening up my Bible and praying and, and journaling and writing some things down, and I literally felt the weight gone. I literally felt, what the heck was I doing? Thinking that I'm in control, thinking that I can save people, thinking that I'm the Holy Spirit. What was I doing? See, sometimes God does put more on us than we can handle to show us that we're not supposed to be handling it. We're supposed to be surrendering it. See, that's what he's teaching the apostles right here. What do you do to worn out disciples? Give them more work because they're not worn out enough. See, if you're a worn out missional community leader, more than likely you're worn out in your own strength. If you're a worn out mom, you're a worn out dad, you're worn out in your own strength. This might be the very thing suffering brings into our life. Sickness brings into our life. Financial problems bring into our life. Takes us to the end of our human strength where the supernatural strength of God can begin. See, that's what's going on here. Jesus is teaching the disciples that real ministry, real ministry happens at the end of your strength. And that real rest comes from being near to Jesus, not from vacation, from being near to Jesus. Let's keep reading. You give them something to eat, eat, and they say, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they found out, they said, five and two fish, one sack lunch. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing and he broke the loaves and he gave it to the disciples and set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were about 5,000 men. Many commentators say that's more than likely 12,000 people in attendance. 5,000 men plus women and children. More, like, more than likely 12,000 people got fed here. And they all ate and were satisfied. What's going on? This is the upside downness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in our weakness, he is strong. In our lack, his provision is seen. In our inability is where his ability is best displayed. What's interesting for me, experiencing a piece of this, that my schedule has not got any less demanding. There's still demands, there's still needs, there's still big decisions that need to make, we need to make as a church. But I'm not, I don't feel the weight like I felt before. What's changed? What is exhausting is the work under the work. It's not the work, work itself. It's the work for me specifically. See, I've experienced the rest from the work under my work, the work to justify myself. What does that mean? What was so exhausting for me was trying to prove, listen, to myself that I'm a great pastor. That's what's exhausting to me. 
It's not the demands you guys put on me. It's not the demands anybody from outside put on me. It's not the demands that God puts on me necessarily. It's the demands I put on myself. What was so exhausting was I had to prove to myself, right, that I was hoping that if I could be a great pastor, I could somehow get into a closer relationship with God. That distance I feel from God, if I'm better at my job, maybe I'll feel better about myself. Maybe I'll feel closer to him. Maybe I'll experience rest, right? But that's not how we experience the rest of God. In John, Jesus comes right out and explains this parable, and he says this, I am the bread. Jesus is the bread here. What's he saying? Jesus is the rest we're looking for. Jesus is the rest of God. Jesus is the bread that was broken so that we could be made whole right? They sit down. What do they do? They break the bread. Only as the bread is broken, does it multiply. Only as Christ's body was broken on the cross, does it become effectual for us? Does it save us? Does it satisfy us? He must be broken. You can't eat bread without it being broken, right? You can't be nourished by bread. Bread does no good to the body unless you break it and eat it. Christ does no good to us. He's not just a great example of a life well lived. He doesn't do any good for us unless he's broken on the cross. And by taking our place on the cross, he becomes our justifier. He becomes the food that we eat that nourishes our soul through faith. He is the bread that if you take him into you will satisfy. Now listen, what is your idea of rest? Peace and quiet. No demands, no pressures, phone off, less people, sleeping through the night. All of those things are good, and we should thank God for every one of them when they're available. But what happens when none of the, you can't have any of those things? What happens when something blocks you from those things? What happens when you can't get a day off? What happens when the neighbors stop by unexpected? The people you've been praying for in missional community, and you're stressed out, just had a fight with your wife, and they show up at the door. What happens? Not now, right? Is that what happens? What happens when the kids freak out in the middle of the night, right? What happens when sickness comes? What happens when financial devastation comes? Stresses at work, financial pressures, depression. You can't control these things. And if your rest is dependent upon them, you're always going to be in flux. You're always going to be stressed out. You're never going to experience this rest. Jesus is teaching the disciples and he's teaching us by extension that true rest is found in himself. He's the bread that satisfies. This is the lesson they need to learn. They don't need a respite from ministry. They need satisfaction in the midst of ministry. They need rest in the minute, in the midst of a busy season. They need to be, they need to eat and be satisfied the Israelites thought that rest was going to be found in their circumstances in the promised land. But in Exodus thirty-three fourteen, God says this, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. My presence will go with you and I will go give you rest. What is, where does true rest come from? The presence of Jesus. Why are you so tired? Why are you spread so thin like too much butter or too little butter over too much bread? 
because you aren't resting in the finished work of Jesus. You aren't feasting on the bread of life. This is for Christians and unchristians this morning, insiders and outsiders. You're stressed out because of your unbelief. Feast on Jesus. Rest in the finished work of Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? Think about it this way. You're like a lawyer who's building a case for himself. Every day you wake up and you're a lawyer and you're building a case. Now listen, Christians would say God is on the bench. We have to prove to God. We have to prove our case to God. But you might be a secularist. You might say, I don't believe in God. I'm on the bench. Okay. You could be on the bench. That's fine. doesn't matter for this illustration. Every day we wake up and we have to prove ourselves. We have to build a case, right? Every good thing I do is proof to the judge that I'm a good person. It's proof that I should be acquitted or I should be brought in or I should be welcomed or I'm finally a good person. I'm not guilty. I'm a good person. But what does a lawyer say after he's presented all his evidence? Prosecutor, what does he say? He says this, the people rest, your honor. The people rest. See, that's why you can't rest. That's why it's so hard for you to take criticism. You are building a case and you know you're not ready to rest your case. Your good deeds have not, they're not good enough. You're aware of your insecurities. You think, okay, one more sale, one more counseling session, one more person brought to Jesus, one more good deed will finally prove to myself that I'm a good person, that I can finally rest my case. But you know it's not true. You know you can never rest. You know you have this haunting thought inside your head that you're not good enough that you won't be accepted, that you'll rest your case and the judge will still say, guilty, failure, a life not well lived. See, this is your unbelief. This is every other religion in the world. How you live your life, how you prove your case determines if you'll get heaven or hell. You think you can actually do something good enough or be productive enough to rest your case before God. And this is what the gospel says. That lifestyle, that way to live that so infects even all of us in this room, that is a denial and a rejection of Jesus. Hear the gospel this morning. Jesus was perfect. And if you turn from your working, if you turn from your productivity, the work under your work, trying to prove to the world that you're somebody, trying to prove to yourself that you're good. If you turn from your working and you turn to Jesus and you see what he's done for you in his life, his perfect life, in his death, his substitutionary death on the cross, that Jesus went before the bench of God. He proved his case. He lived perfectly. So there was, I mean, the case is built perfectly. There's nothing we can do to add to that. And Jesus took our punishment on the cross, our guilty plea, our, our, that's, that we're all guilty before God. He took the punishment of our guilt on the cross, died, was resurrected on the third day. And now Jesus says, I rest my case. 
And for us, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, his perfection, his righteousness can be counted for us. And we can stand before the judgment seat of God. We can stand before our own judgment seat, whatever we want to say. And we can say, I rest my case because it's not based upon my own works, my own productivity. It's based upon the productivity of Jesus. And Jesus accomplished it all. See, we know we can never find rest until our work's done. But Jesus on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. Everything necessary for our salvation, for our happiness, for our eternal rest has already been accomplished for us. We need to believe it. And listen, as you believe it, as that goes deeper and deeper and deeper down into your heart, you'll experience the rest in the here and, here and now and today. No matter how stressful work is, no matter how stressful ministry is, no matter how stressful your neighborhood is, your home life is, you can experience this rest here and now because it's not based on your circumstances, it's based on Christ. We can rest our case when it's dependent upon Jesus. But if, you're, if it's dependent upon you, you'll never rest. You'll never rest. You'll always be building your case. My plea with you this morning is to come to the bread of life. Come to Jesus and eat the bread that satisfies. Experience the rest that satisfies. This is what, why we take the bread and the cup. That we're taking Christ this morning. That for many of you, if you've been convicted, if you feel a restlessness in your soul, if you know you've been going to work, um, to find your identity. We, ought, we ask you to turn from that this morning. We, we read in our liturgy, what is repentance? It's feeling conviction over our sin, feeling sorry for our sin and turning to Jesus. We, that's what we ask you to do this morning. Feel the weight of your sin and turn and embrace Jesus and find rest. Jesus says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Father, we thank you for the rest that you've provided for us, a rest from the work under our work, that we can lay down the work of proving ourselves. We can lay down the work of trying to gain an identity through our productivity. We can rest. And we can hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. We can hear that now because our identity is based on the work of Jesus. I pray this morning that many in this room would rest their case. They would stop trying to prove themselves and they would embrace what's been provided for them through Christ. This grace of God would change their heart and from this new heart, this new grace-shaped heart, um, repentance would grow and fruitful works would grow, and productivity would grow, and um, ministry would grow from a heart that's been changed by God. They're not working for their identity, but they're working from their identity. And I pray this morning as we come to feast, we come hungry. We come empty. We come tired. We come stressed. We come broken. We come sinners. And Jesus, we know that you came for the broken. You came for the sinful. 
You came for the lost. You came for us. We have a great need, but you have even greater provision. We are great sinners, but you are even a greater savior. Would you help us eat this by faith this morning, taking you into ourself, the body and the bread and the blood and the wine, that your blood was spilled for the remission of our sins, and we thank you for it. And our standing before God is not in jeopardy. We don't have to be nervous when we think about the bench and we think about God because our case is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We eat this in worship of you this morning. In Christ's name, amen.